Hi, and welcome to Finding Your Way Through Therapy. I am your host, Steve Bissell. I'm an author and mental health counselor. Are you curious about therapy? Do you feel there is a lot of mystery about therapy? Do you wonder what your therapist is doing and why? The goal of this podcast is to make therapy and psychology accessible to all by using real language and straight-to-the-point discussions. This podcast wants to remind you to take care of your mental health, just like you would your physical health. Therapy should not be intimidating. It should be a great way to better health. I will demystify what happens in counseling, discuss topics related to mental health, and discussions you can have with your therapist. I also want to introduce psychology in everyday life, as I feel most of our lives are enmeshed in psychology. I want to introduce the subtle and not-so-subtle ways psychology plays a factor in our lives. It will be my own mix of thoughts as well as special guests. So join me on this discovery of therapy and psychology. Hi, and welcome to episode 28 of Finding Your Way Through Therapy. My name is Steve Bisson. If you haven't listened to episode 27 yet, I hope you do. It's about sports and why I bring it up in therapy and how I think it can be used as a therapeutic tool with so many people. Episode 28 will be a returning guest, Sergeant Jay Ball. We talked about his accolades before, but just a reminder, he's a sergeant at the in Framingham, Massachusetts. He is also a trainer in mental health first aid for first responders, and he always brings a very unique perspective. And this time we also invited Caitlin Dehe, and I hope I pronounced that right. And if I haven't, she's going to let me know anyway. Caitlin worked as a co-responder for seven and a half years with the Framingham Police Department on the 4 to 12 shift and is also a certified mental health first aid instructor she teaches with Jay. She is a licensed mental health counselor also and currently is the lead clinician at Westboro Behavioral Health Outpatient Services, where she will focus on first and last responders. And I'm sure she's going to talk about that. I'm very much looking forward to adding a little mix to our conversation. I hope you enjoy it, too. Well, hi, and welcome to episode 28 of Finding Your Way Through Therapy. Again, I'm Steve Bissell, sitting here with Caitlin D. D I don't even know how to pronounce your last name. How do I pronounce your name? Dehe. Dehe. All right. And Jay Ball or something like that. I think you've been here before, though, so I should know your name much better. If you mess up my name. I'm French-Canadian. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome. And again, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about first responders. And I'm so happy that Caitlin was able to join us. She's been a pretty good star in our conversations for the last few shows. So I figured I'd put her in and I include her. So Caitlin, the first thing I would say is welcome and kind of introduce yourself because everyone gets to introduce themselves. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. And yeah, I actually listened to your last conversation with Jay last night. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm glad that I'm going to be making an appearance so people know who, who they're talking about. So yeah, so my name is Caitlin Dehe. I am a licensed mental health clinician. I, for the last almost eight years, worked for advocates as first a co-responder in Framingham on the 4 to 12 shift. I did that for about four years, and then I switched over to helping advocates launch the first co-response training and technical assistance center. And I managed that for three and a half, almost four years. And the purpose of that was to replicate the co-response model across the state of Massachusetts. So we did that pretty successfully, I would say. We, When I started, there was co-response three towns. And when I left, we were in 16. So that's pretty exciting to be a part of all that. And I just recently made a a switch. I left and I have joined Westboro Behavioral Health. I'm going to be working with them to launch a first responder, first and last responder, actually, partial and uh, intensive outpatient program. So I'm pretty excited about that. And that's, uh, that's the next chapter. Well, welcome. And I'm happy you listened to the last episode. You should listen to the one before that. And it really does help. So one of the things that I, I wanted to start to talk about this, you know, this episode's coming right in the middle of the holidays. And, you know, one of the things that we, you know, everyone talks about the stress for holidays for people and all that, but, you know, this is not directed at Caitlin or Jay, it's both of you, frankly, and I certainly have my own input, but holidays have such an impact on mental health, 
And I find that particularly it's the case for people that you encounter as a first responder and or co-responder. But I also think that within the first responder population, there's an enormous impact in wonder you think about short staff and sometimes, you know, if you've had a substance use problem in the past, maybe that re-emerges during that time. So I'll start with you, Jay, maybe, and uh, we'll go back to you, Caitlin. What type of role do you feel the holidays have on all that stuff? I see it as, as a big role. And it's funny, just oh, not funny. It's ironic, I should say, that just today, as soon as I sat down at my desk, a call came in for a two-year-old not breathing. A lot of us were sitting in our cubicles. We weren't going to the call. Came in also that the mother, the updates were coming in. The, the child was turning blue. Now, I'm not going to the call. Uh, other officers are going. But you sit there and you think, why is this affecting me? But you think of yourself going to the call. You think of the officer going to the call. You think of the mother and who's ever with that. And then you couple in, like you said, the holidays. Now, that can happen any time of year. But just want to bring up that that just happened no longer than two hours ago. Another thing, a couple. I know it's it's not woe is me for first responders, but you know we've kind of shaped the shows that I'm on to first responders. A few years ago, I remember at my previous department in Milford, it was Christmas Eve, and a lady was trying to complete suicide uh, in her vehicle uh, by method using her vehicle. And you know, you're thinking people are going to parties, people are having you know maybe a couple of drinks, people are getting together with their relatives, and this uh, this young lady was so alone that. Luckily, someone saw her, and um, that didn't happen that night. But uh, it, it seems to have a dramatic increase over the holidays where people are doing this and also the first responders that are arriving on scene to make sure it doesn't happen and to get those people the services they need. Well, I definitely seen that impact even personally, too, in the work that I've done. I, we talked about the suicide rates being higher in April and May for the general population. My experience with first responders, it's significantly higher in November, December, January, actually. I don't have any stats to prove what I just said. It's just my personal experience and having had a completed suicide of a first responder during that time. I also think that it has an enormous impact because of so many different things, including seeing so many things. And for some reason, having more of those stories when the holidays occur really bothers people. But, you know, I don't know, Caitlin, what has been your experience around all that? Yeah, I think as a, as a co-responder, we definitely noticed an increase in just sort of an escalation of symptoms across the board around the holiday time. And I think in terms of first responders, I think another thing that impacts it is, you know, the holidays are supposed to be a time for being with your family and, you know, going to holiday dinners and first responders work 24-7. They don't always get to take that time and be with their family on Christmas morning when their kids are opening presents from Santa or where they're on Hanukkah to do those traditions. And I think that can make it particularly hard for, for first responders in, in that way. Yeah, I think the lack of presence plays a factor because it's not like uh, people are taking it easy and not having medical emergencies and or police emergencies oh, it's the 24th, I'm going to calm down. And oh, Hanukkah just started, let's not do that. Jay, how do you feel people kind of deal with that when there is some like frustration, especially nowadays with this is being recorded in December of 2021. There's a lot of short staff departments. I don't know of any departments that are short staff and that ends up affecting a whole lot of people, including people who've been there for 15, 20 years who count on those holidays, so to speak. Yeah, it, it, it's tough. I, I'm lucky this year. Next year, not so lucky. This year, I'm lucky. I have pretty much Christmas in the day before and after off. But between the sh- you know being short staffed across the board, and also with COVID, we still have officers. I know include firefighters and other first responders getting infected. And though it's not a, what it was in the onset those officers and firefighters, first responders quarantine, and then their close contacts have to be out also. So that, along with being short-staffed at, at these police and fire departments, you've got those days off like I do, and then you almost feel guilty. It says, geez, if I can come in for six hours and cover this shift so someone doesn't get forced into a triple, but on the other end, am I going to get forced into it? You, all these things run through your mind, and it puts a stress. You know, you tell your family at home, 
that, all right, I'll be off these three days, but your family at work, you want them to be home also. So sometimes guys without children step up. At my department happens a lot. They'll step up and take those shifts, even if it's just a couple hours to cover to make sure that some of the guys with children and stuff can, can go home. But yeah, it is it is a burden when you got to tell your family that, yeah, I'm working these three days and I hope to see you at four o'clock or I hope to see you at midnight, but there's a chance I could get ordered, you know, and ordering for those who don't know is you get ordered onto the next shift could happen at the last minute. Especially with the medicals that you just talked about plays a big factor. And, you know, I've recently had uh, someone who told me that they were going to see their family on Thanksgiving and, uh, you know, there's a COVID exposure. So second shift four to 12, when they were supposed to go out, when they don't live in the same town as where they work, they were told, yeah, tough beans, you got to stick around. I can see where that plays a huge stress on the families. It plays a huge stress on that individual. But at the end of the day, do you feel that we have methods that we can handle that stuff and try to not only have guys who help out just because, and again, maybe I'm breaking a wall here, but not all the guys are willing to help out. And some guys are kind of like, here's my 40 and that's what I do. Yeah, no, it's, and I think I mentioned maybe a previous episode, uh, you know, it's generational changes, positive and negative, neutral, some neutral, but, um, yeah, it's different. When I came up, and it wasn't that long ago, almost 18 years ago, and obviously the military before that, but some things you didn't do. And now it seems guys in my generation see others as selfish sometimes, but we got to look and you know, it's generational. I have the day off, like you said, 40 hours. I have the day off. This is my days off. That's that. I work my 40 hours. And it's not like you said, breaking a wall or anything like that. It's, it's just understanding to take care of each other. It doesn't matter, you know, as I brought up generations, but it doesn't matter about the generations. It's, you know, look out for each other, take care of each other. If a person's getting forced into a third shift or even a fourth shift, which rarely happens, but it can happen depending how, um, you know, how big a department is, you know, take care of that person. Tell them, listen, I'll come in four hours or early for you. I'll come in two hours. Just because they get forced onto an eight-hour shift doesn't mean they have to do the whole eight-hour shift. Look out, come in two hours early, maybe come in midday, let them go home to eat with their family or hang out with their family and just little things like that. Cause it is a stressor. What about you, Caitlin? Have you seen anything particularly in the holidays on how people can support each other? I mean, there's so many pasta dinners you can get from restaurants that make you feel warm and fuzzy at a department, obviously. Yeah, I think that piece is hard. And in terms of like listening to Jay talk about, people getting forced forced to third and fourth shifts, like that in my mind just sends up all these like safety risk bells, right? Like you're just, just as humans, we can't function that way. And, and as first responders, you're being asked to do this monumental job every day, but you haven't, you've been working for almost 24 hours. So that can't be good for anyone involved, really, not for the first responders and not for the community that the first responders are serving. So I think that's such an important thing to try and, and look at and, and, and yeah, help, help each other out if you can. Uh, I know even as co-responders, we tried to make sure that people had time off at the holidays to be able to spend with their families. As co-responders, we are almost like first responders that maybe a little different, but we are responding to the scene of calls that the police go to. So, you know, there's a lot of, especially around this time of the holidays with increases in different difficult times for people that exposes clinicians uh, who co-respond to some more vicarious trauma and that kind of thing. So we always tried to make sure that at the holidays, people got got that time off to not only spend with their families, but to really do some self-care because that is really such an important piece of first responding in any capacity. Well, I, I always talked about the crisis team when I worked with the crisis team, I did an episode on that. I talk about us as being first responders and a half, not to insult anyone who does first responder work, but you know, we're not quite at first at the scene, but we're kind of right behind it and having to deal with what's in front of us with limited information sometimes. So I, I definitely see the value in that. And, no, I was just going to say one thing. It always jumps in my head. I've got a person I know pretty well, good and bad. And um, a person's a veteran. And 
that person has a tough time around the holidays. I'm close to this person and they have a tough time telling me the, the whole story. But I just want people that, to understand, even on a veterans level that are listening, when soldiers, Marines, Airmen, and Navy, they go overseas, they're deployed, they don't, oh, it's not two weeks, we're going to go home. No, they're there. And things happen. They, and I hate saying enemy, but foreign combatants don't take a break because we have a holiday and we're all sitting down around the table. Things have happened on Christmas. Things have happened on New Year's, Thanksgiving, birthdays. And this specific person, they could go all year being sober. And when November rolls around to the beginning of January, that is a, a very troubling time in that person's life. It's, it's known by actions that person's made. And that person knows it. And it took five instances over five years for someone to finally realize that, hold on a second, November to January, we got to keep an eye out. So I say that to the people listening, keep an eye out. doesn't need to be someone in the military, but that's, that's one example I can use. Those soldiers and, and military personnel overseas don't get that break. Right. And I think that when you think about substance use, when do we offer the most alcohol during the course of the year? It's during the holidays and being very mindful of all that. I think that understanding that if someone says, I don't want to drink, your question does not have to be, why? It could be like, okay. And I think that that makes a huge difference for a whole lot of people. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think too, just like keeping an eye out is such a good piece of advice, not just amongst coworkers, but amongst neighbors and friends, you know, who have maybe, you know, you have a neighbor who lives by herself and she has no family and she's elderly and the holidays could be a difficult time for that person. And just checking in on the people that are around us during this time, just make sure everyone's doing okay. And I think it's a great opportunity also for my experience anyway, is that I think about how first responders can become humans during that time because they can, we see a lot of the holiday drives. We see the parades and I remember a Milford, Massachusetts parade where there's a gentleman that I know that was in that parade that's on this call. You know, it's the stuff, the stuff that, you know, kind of like people like the, they could change the perception of how we work. So not only being caring for the community, caring for other first responders, but do you guys feel that we are able to address it with, with first responders, making more human during this, especially this time of year? I mean, I think so. I think you do see the shop with the cop programs and the firefighters driving Santa around in the parades and, and, you know, doing those things. I think, you know, all that community involvement that first responders have during the holidays and really should try to have all year round is plays such an important role in, in that public perception of the first responders and in, in the community. Yeah. Piggybacking off what, what Caitlin said, she brought up a good point, you know, yeah, it can be done year round. And, and a lot of things, especially in my department, we do a lot of community outreach. But the holidays, as you brought up, Steve, originally are, are a tough time, you know, financially for some people, food-wise for some people. And we've got some great people at our place and, and surrounding agencies. They help us out also. And it's not that we don't want to do it year-round. It's just, you know, focused towards the holidays and making sure people have someone, even dropping off the meals to, to shut-ins. I don't know if that's still a correct word to use, but to people who can't get out that don't have families, knock on the door. Maybe that knock on the door, they answer, they don't answer. Or, you know, you may find that there were two meals being delivered to this house and then uh, someone answers and they they start crying and you're wondering why they're crying. They could be happy to drop it off meals, but they could have just lost their spouse two weeks before and two meals are showing up and they're by themselves. And that also shows us that we can get back to say our housing officers or, or people like Caitlin who, who correspond with us. Hey, listen, this, this is, a, they're struggling at this house. So the outreach is two ways. It's helpful to the community in multiple ways. And then we're just a reminder, listening to Finding Your Way Through Therapy. I'm sitting here with Caitlin and Jay. We're talking about first responders and the holidays, but we're going to talk about a lot of different things here. What I think that is also very important to remind ourselves, especially when you talk about people who are isolated, socially isolated, shut-ins, is I think me and you talked about it at one episode. And Caitlin, I'd love to hear your input. What I find interesting is that if you have a loved one that you lost in January, February, and now the holidays, the first holiday without them. Well, 
maybe you forgot about it because it happened in February, but that person who had that loss has not forgotten about that. And I think that that's when I tell people, it's like telling someone I'll be there for you for the first two weeks is a cliche at best and is everyone's willing to do that. It's that third and fourth week or fourth month or so far, you know, six months or 12 months, depending on it. That's really what's important. Do we reach out to individuals who may have had those losses? What do we, what can we do to support that? I mean, I think, yeah, if you, if, if you can have, take that time and, and reach out, I think that's, that's really important. And that's such a good point. I mean, my father passed away when I was a senior in high school and I won't ever forget that day, which the date of it. And, but I don't expect people in my life to remember that date, but there's a few people who, who do. And when they reach out and say, Hey, I'm thinking about you today. Like that really means a lot. And again, it's not an expectation I have of people because that would be unrealistic for me to think that, you know, other people are going to remember something like that when it's really a thing for, you know, a personal thing. But, you know, if you, if you do remember and you do think about that person around that time of year, yeah, reach out, tell them you're thinking about them. Sometimes that's all it takes, you know, even just with somebody who could be in a dark place and having suicidal ideations and just having somebody reach out to them and say, Hey, I'm thinking about you. Like that could be the thing that maybe stops them from going ahead and and completing a suicide. You just never know how far a small gesture like that can go. And so, yeah, I think if you, if you have the opportunity and the forethought to reach out to people when you know that it's a difficult time, I think that's, a really important thing that we can all do to help each other out. Well, you know, I'm going to keep you on the spot, spotlight here, Caitlin. We'll shift a little bit because, you know, me and Jay were talking before we recorded and we decided that, you know, you are the star of the show. So we are going to go with that. No pressure. But no pressure. Don't worry. No, no one listens to this anyway. <laughs> I did the whole JDP at the time. And I know we've changed the name, but I still call it JDP. And Sarah, if you're upset with me, I'm sorry. Just saying you right now. She is. She is now. Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> I, I, I've had, I've pissed off enough people in my life. Anyway, I had a great experience with the guys, but I certainly had some, you know, some mixed experience at times. You've had that experience for over eight years. What has been do you feel like there was a shift even during those eight years? I know the hard work, and again, give props to Sarah. The, the 2003, 2004, Sarah was it in, you know, in Framingham, Massachusetts, and she helped break down a lot of barriers. And obviously, she brought other people on, but you did it for eight years. Have you seen a shift even during your eight years there? What has been the attitude overall? And any difficulties that you still feel are still persisting? And we're not talking about any particular department, we're talking generally, of course. Yeah, no, absolutely. I've seen a shift in general departments. I've never started a co-response program with a department that wasn't skeptical a little bit. They, you know, will come. Like I remember the very first program that I helped to replicate when we opened the Training and Technical Assistance Center. They, you know, sent representatives from the department to TTAC and we sat down with them. And What's the TTAC, by the way? Oh, training and technical assistance center. Sorry. And so they came to the office and they sat down and, but they came in and they didn't take their coat off and they sat with their arms folded and you could tell they were not really thrilled to be there. They were sort of voluntold to come and talk to these, these clinician ladies. And they sat down and said, so we, we like the idea of having a clinician in our department, but we we don't want that whole like riding in the cruiser thing. We don't want that to happen. We just want them to be at the department in case we need them for something. And we Sarah and I said, okay, well, that's what we do is the whole riding in the cruiser part. So we can guide you in a different direction if that's what you want, but let us tell you about why the riding in the cruiser part is good. <laughs> and about an hour later, these officers were, had taken off their jackets, they had relaxed their body posture, and they looked at me and said, so can we just take you with us right now to the department to ride in the cruiser? <laughs> and obviously, that's not the way it works. But you know, the, just hearing us talk about all the benefits of having a clinician in the cruiser, it was unbelievable to watch in front of my eyes, like their whole attitude shift about it, and the interest and the excitement about it. And 
again, like once you bring it back to a, a department, there's always an officer or two that's been there for 30 plus years. And they're like, yeah, I'm not doing that. I'm not letting the clinician and the cruiser. And that's fine. We don't take that personally. Right. Sure. Talk for so, yourself there, Caitlin. <laughs> there was an officer I worked with who he didn't want me riding around with him for any length of time, but he saw the value of me being on a call. And so if he had a call that he knew he was going to, that was going to have some kind of mental health stuff, he would pick me up at the station and he would, for anybody who's not been in the front of a cruiser, usually the officers leave their, their duty bags in the seat next to them in the passenger seat. And he would pick that bag up and let me sit down, but he would put the bag like on the console in between us. And then as soon as the call was over and we went back to the station, he put the bag right back in its spot. Like there's no room for you, Caitlin. And that's fine. And that was, but he, but again, he recognized the value of having the clinician on scene to help in the moment. And so that was how, how we did things. And that was great. And, you know, again, it's, it is a voluntary program. That's the purpose. That's the way it works is because we don't force it on officers to use, but when they see the value of it, they, argue over who's taking the clinician on the road today because <laughs> it's it's a helpful thing right and not just for it's helpful not just for the people in the community that the officers are dealing with but it's also helpful for the officers whether they know it or not in the moment but you know you're riding around in a cruiser with somebody who is trained to listen to you talk they talk they don't necessarily even know they're doing it but they talk about all the things that are going on in their lives and we're not their therapists, so we're not, you know, doing therapy in the cruiser, right? But, like, it obviously is helpful for them to unload some of that stuff, and that's fine. So it's helpful in, in that way, and then it's also helpful in the training way because the officers will see you interact with somebody as a clinician, and then they'll be like, hey, you said, you know, something other about auditory hallucinations. What's an auditory hallucination? Or, like, they'll ask questions about things after a call. And you'll start to see the shift even just from like introducing themselves. Like officers show up at a call and they say, what's going on? And I show up at a call and I say, hey, I'm Caitlin. Can you tell me what's happening tonight? And then in a week or so, you see that same officer who showed up and said, what's going on? Goes into the thing and says, hey, I'm officer so-and-so. What's going on tonight? And you just see that gradual shift from that cross training that happens from just being together and, and working together in that way. And it's really exciting and really remarkable thing to watch happen actually i mean look she brainwashed me into getting involved in this <laughs> well you know it's kind of funny because all i could think of is it took caitlin to get jay to really be on board on all this so congratulations caitlin i've been i've known this man for 20 years and i work at mental health but all joking aside, one of the things that I had felt, and maybe that's what you're also talking about, one of the things that I'll always remember is there was an officer that didn't believe at all in what we did. And one day, it's in, and it's in, and everyone has their little area that they got to cover. In his area, there was a mental health call. And he was he says, I'll get the mental health guy, put him in the car. And then didn't quite like he didn't move the bag. He put it on the ground. So you got a lot more lucky than I did. Was, I was like with my feet up to my head. But anyway, but when he saw the usefulness of my, my presence, we do roll call and he would be, Steve, you're coming with me, right? Okay. And it was that one moment of, holy crap, he can be useful. And he started putting his bag in the trunk. Which was really I was gonna say you got he was put on your lap. <laughs> <laughs> that that did happen with a sergeant <laughs> that I will not name. Uh, <laughs> but ultimately, I think that that's what has been very helpful when we got to break those barriers as a co-responder. You know, and again, since we have two superstars here, and that doesn't include me, Jay. I wonder what. Obviously, you've worked with Caitlin, and you know, we all it's been horrible. Know. It's been horrible, Steve. And I know, and that's, I mean, you only talk about bad things when we, when we're not on the air, just with just recording yeah. me, talking me and you, but when we record, you say good things, but ultimately I wonder how you felt she's impacted her time there and any of them, obviously, because I know, I don't want to talk about specific departments, but I've been in the, not directly always involved, but since 2004, I've seen many, many different clinicians do the ride-alongs. 
how has Caitlin really impacted not only you who is now converted and only does mental health, but other stuff? Converted. Jeez, I feel like I changed religions or something. That's no. what they're doing. It's an intervention right now. No kidding, right? You guys are ganging up on me. No, Caitlin, it's, it's, I hate to say multifaceted, but I, I remember taking Caitlin, I think her and I only went one call together. I, and it's one I remember was down on uh, Second Street in the city I work in. And I had her down there. It was almost, how did I, I knew what Caitlin did. I knew how she did things. I was already 50% believing in the program. I, I always believed in the program. I just had walls up in myself. And I remember being down there and she probably doesn't remember it or she does. And it's a totally different story than I'm about to tell, but she was handling something on her own. And I was walking in and out of the house. And my mentality as a police officer was she's going to do her job. She knows how to do her job. She's a pro at this, but I don't want anything to happen to her. And I don't know if it was a brotherly thing, a fatherly thing, because I'm, I'm old now. It was like, she's doing her thing, but I always wanted to check on her and I wasn't leaving. And I, I know that some quote unquote co-response units think that, oh yeah, we'll just, yeah, we send someone there. No, you know, I get Caitlin with me and in hand in hand with that, seeing her work, seeing her talk to people, also the effect she has on, had on the police department. But most importantly, she's been my partner teaching for the past couple of years and I always call her boss because she was the boss. But but the thing was, she's, she's taught me a lot. In the classes, we share a lot about our personal lives to the students to, to have that you know lived experience and the real world experience. And, and to know why Caitlin, I'm not going to give a spoiler uh, alert. You're going to have to come to a class we teach. But to see some of the things that Caitlin puts out there that she doesn't need to put out there. She's got enough education, enough experience on this job. And, and, and lives saved is the best way of saying it to just go with the class and go with the flow. But she puts personal stuff out there to show that number one, she's human. And, and number two, this is how you get through it. This is how you deal with it. We're all, we all have things in our lives and nothing wrong with that. So knowing her over those years, she's had a direct effect on myself, but I know other police officers also. Well, it's definitely something that, you know, you mentioned earlier, Caitlin, what you just said. What I found eventually with time is that they'd want you to have the ride along because they want to talk about shit going down in their lives and bringing that human side to mental health and that we're not so stringent and being human, I think is really the difference between a clinician that lasts years in this field versus a clinician that lasts months who wants to keep that, I don't think professionalism is the right word, but that stoic view. And I think that you sharing who you are in those classes, as well as, you know, with others, I really think that that helps. Was that intended the way you've done it? Or is it just like unintentional that it developed that way? I, that's a good question. I, I don't, I don't really know, but I think I, as a clinician in training, they always talk about like being careful with self-disclosing things and you should only do it in, in a therapeutic way if you're going to disclose things about yourself. And obviously, you know, when I'm teaching a class, I'm not in therapy, but I think about it that way. Like, listen, I'm, I'm standing in front of this group of first responders trying to get them to like buy into like mental health is a thing and we need to pay attention to it for everyone, not just the general public. And it's important for you also. And, and like, I can preach about that and talk about it from an academic standpoint all day long, but isn't it better for them to see me here standing in front of them as somebody who I, I have had anxiety and I have had panic attacks and we talk about anxiety and panic attacks in mental health first aid. And, you know, I'm able to tell them what that feels like and explain it in, from a personal way. And I feel like you just get farther <laughs> in making an impact when you share that kind of stuff, not only with students in a class, but, you know, if you're dealing with a client that has really bad anxiety and a, a panic attack and, just feel like sometimes, of course, as long as in therapy is therapeutic, I think self-disclosure can be so helpful for people because they're like, oh, like, I'm not alone in this. This person I'm, t and this person I'm opening up to about it knows what I'm talking about. Like they're, you know, they're not just telling me, talking to me about it from what they know from a textbook. They're talking about it from their own experience as well. And I think that also speaks to like the increase in peer work, recovery coaches and peer specialists and, you know, that lived experience can be so 
validating and so empowering for people compared to what I as a trained clinician can offer somebody who, you know, somebody who's struggling with heroin addiction. I've never been through that. I can talk to you about the ways to help yourself through it and I can give you the resources and all that. But how empowering is it to have somebody who also used to struggle with that has come out on the other side and now can can relate to you in that way. I think that's such a, I think that's why it works and why it's becoming more and more popular. And I think, I guess that's why I do it too, because I feel like it's letting people know that you're a human, not just this like talking head of a counselor, I think really brings that human side to it and really helps people feel connected. Yeah, one other thing too, along with Caitlin, obviously, we're not going to make her the focus of it. It's all about her. I remember when she was switching jobs, and I don't want to make that a focus, but she did what she did so well. She went to school for this, and this is what she wanted to do, but I'll never forget the day she called me and said, oh my God, my dream job. And not that she was doing phenomenal what she was doing, working for cool response, working with police officers, but now to hopefully have a direct role in treatment and help of police officers, I can tell to, to the first responders out there right now, if you are ever going to trust someone and you're ever going to talk to someone, Caitlin and the type of person Caitlin is, that's who you'd want to. And, and Steve's the same way. But like I said, when Caitlin said she, she had a dream job, it is. She wants to protect the police officers. She's, she's not there to harm you, to hurt you. She wants you to succeed. She wants you to excel. I say some things when I'm teaching class and I look in the back and she goes smiling or rolling her eyes and smiling. But she knows I'm saying these because I'm trying to strike a nerve in some of the first responders. And Caitlin, I hate to say she picks up the pieces, but she picks up the pieces. She she helps. She wants to help first responders. It's just, uh, I, I could keep going on and on, but uh, that's the type of person uh, she is. And there's a lot of people out there like that that want to help first responders. And it's up for first responders to, to buy into that. And I think before you even came on, Jay, me and Caitlin were having a conversation. I think that the hardest part of wanting to help a first responder is a lot of therapists fall short of understanding of meeting the person where they're at. And I know that that's part of our jobs as a therapist, but I also feel like we either worry about how we're going to be seen by the police officer or we use methodology that may not be as effective for first responders in general. And I don't know if that's been your experience to both of you, but this is probably a question for both. I know that you've switched recently, Caitlin, so I know that you're still working on the program. But one of my experiences is really that some of these programs fall flat because they don't really meet the officers or the firefighters or the EMTs or the paramedics, but the first responders in general where they're at. Is that something that you feel is true or do you feel like I'm kind of overgeneralizing here? Oh, I think that's, I think that is a part of it for sure. I think when you're in a, in a clinical training program, you know, you're taught to do something a certain way. And I think with first responders, we have to be less sort of rigid in the way we do some of the things that we would typically do in therapy and and be a little more flexible and meet them where they're at because otherwise they're out the door. They're not coming back. (laughs) And I think the other part of it too, and I've heard horror stories of police or firefighters or even EMTs going to a therapist who isn't familiar with first responder culture. And that's also a, a problem because if you're not familiar with that culture, your clinicians can get caught up in not understanding like the language or not understanding certain things. And so then the first responders feel like they have to explain themselves. And, or I heard a story once about a a first responder who went to a clinician who like wanted to know their coolest story. Like that's more often than not, that's the case. So inappropriate. Like that is not your, that is not your role ever. You wouldn't ask, a patient who was a bank teller that like, you you know what I mean? Like, you, you know, I think people get caught up in that and sort of the glamour that society has put on, on the first responder, you know, from movies and TV shows and all that. And I think people get caught up in that and, and, you know, you have to understand the, the first responder culture and that it really is a culture in and of itself. And that, you know, there's, you know, a lot of dark humor used for coping and, 
and you can't be offended by that stuff. Like, you know, like you just can't because otherwise you're, you're never going to make it as a clinician of a first responder. You've got to be okay with that. You've got to roll with things. And, and it, it does help to know the language I had. I, I did do some um, police outpatient therapy and I had a, a client who was one day talking about going on a Q5 call and like, okay, well, I happen to know what a Q5 is. For those of you listening who don't, that's like the police code, if you will, for somebody who's suicidal. And if you've not heard that term, then as a clinician, you're having to say, can you tell me what a Q5 is? And then the first responders like having to explain that language and that takes away from the therapeutic experience and, and really the purpose of therapy. Um, and so I think that is also something that plays a big part in, in that. I think that the cultural competency is so important. And I think that, that a lot of people, you talk about Q5, there's other languages that occur and they're different from, from state to state too. I mean, I, I didn't have to be told what a bop was when someone explained to me that they had to bop a friend or whatever and bureau probation for the, uninformed and it's looking at any type of arrest or that you've been you've had again just a reminder finding your way through therapy sitting with uh, jane caitlin talking about first responders and i think that cultural competency and dark humor is key i mean if i didn't have dark humor in my work not only for me i think that i would have been very incompetent with the first responders and for me i needed to survive in general i think we can do a whole show on really bad jokes that people make and I, as we said, I did another one with crisis work. I find that with crisis work, we do the same thing. And it's a great way to get uninvited to a lot of parties for us. But Jay, Jay what about you? What are your thoughts about like maybe the cultural competency and everything else that goes with being a, you know, maybe someone who is interested in working with first responders who may be a mental health counselor or social worker or whatever? No, it's huge. And Caitlin and I talk about this. We've talked about it a bunch of times. Your special, per, your special person for being in the psychological field, first of all, clinicians, therapists, whatever, but working with police officers, <laughs> ridiculous if you're not a police officer. You've got to be, you've got to be a really, really, really special person. Some of the things that come out of our mouths, some of the ways we act. I know I first started teaching with Caitlin, she was still in awe that I wanted to teach with her class. I know every time I open my mouth, She's like, oh, God, Lord Jesus, what's coming out of his mouth next? But we say things, and it's not to offend, but the like that you said, cultural competency, also the dark humor. With We're not trying to offend anyone. And a lot of people think things are offensive. They may be. Everyone's different. But it, it does take, you have to have an understanding that of the coping mechanisms of police officers. We're not trying to make fun of anyone. We're not trying to hurt anyone's feelings. But things do slip out. And Caitlin, for example, extremely professional, but she laughs. And sometimes she'll say something along those lines. Or if it's a little overboard, she'll roll her eyes and just, she gives that, I say that I have that fatherly or brotherly thing on that call. She'll give me that like motherly look when I say something that I probably shouldn't say. But it takes a special type of person to work in a police department. It's not built for everyone. An office, it's a controlled environment. A cruiser, the street is not. And that doesn't make any person that doesn't want to work outside of an office as a clinician or a therapist, doesn't make them any more or any less than anyone else. It's just a different different way of thinking this. And I look at it as that sometimes people are detectives. They want to sit there and they want to investigate. I spent most of my time as an investigator, but I love the street also. But they're two different things. That call comes in like today with that baby not breathing. I wanted everything in the world to jump on the cruiser and go up there. But that's not my assignment. All right. So it's just a different assignment within there. It takes a, a special person to, to hang out at a police department. Uh, think of being the most uncomfortable you've ever been in a situation. And not saying this is right, but the most uncomfortable you've ever been in a situation, you're by yourself and you're the only one. And think of how you felt. That's sometimes what a clinician feels like in a police department. And I, I won't say it because I've never been that, but Caitlin, is that kind of right when you first start out? Yeah, I mean... It's, and it depends on a little bit now. It depends on the department. You know, in Framingham, co-response is very institutionalized there. Their co-response has been there longer than a lot of the officers that are there. So 
it takes, I think, a little less time for new clinicians in that department to get adjusted in that way. But it is it, it, when you are the only clinician in a police department, it can be overwhelming. And one of the things that we tell our clinicians is that the first six months, like all you should be doing is developing relationships with the people in the department, because for this to work, they have to trust you and you have to trust them. And part of the thing, like one of the fastest ways to like get them to not trust you is to try and correct that non-PC language or, you know, educate them about how what they said was offensive or they don't, that, that's not our role. Our role as a corresponder in a police department is not to change and educate, change their language. Our role is to be able to help them on scene with people in a crisis. That's our role. And they do change their language to some extent from just from watching us do what we do. And, and you'll see that happen. But even still, you know, one of the hard parts about co-response right now is finding clinicians that not right now always is finding clinicians that can can sit with that and sit with that discomfort of maybe hearing an officer say something that makes them uncomfortable and you know when we used to when I used to be involved in interviewing new clinicians I'd say would you be able to sit with a situation like that and then process it in supervision or would you have to say something to that officer in that moment and the ones who said oh I'd have to say something in that moment like then, then this isn't the job for you <laughs> because you say something in that moment and that's the fastest way to get you out of that cruiser and never in it again because that's not what we're there for and you have to be, a, be able to sit with that and be okay with that and again it's like Jay said it's not for all clinicians and that's okay it doesn't working with adolescents would not be the clinical job for me on a regular basis <laughs> there's different there's different populations that people work with and they're not for everybody and that's okay, but you have to be able to know that about yourself as a clinician. And I, and I think that using the talk about certain things, like I've always, I remember one of my first experiences that I was going to a call for a crazy, not my words, the name of the, and I'm like, all right, let's go see the crazy. And then we kind of took care of it. And then I said, and he says, that was crazy. I said, well, technically we're all freaking crazy. So just adds another one to the list. And that kind of showed that the language can be a little bit deterrent without saying, hey, listen, you can't say that word. It's not appropriate because I'm sure that if I said that, I would have lasted a full night on that cruiser and never been in there again. And the other analogy that I give for people who work, because I've worked with parole, probation, I've been in jail for the working for mental health. I say our job is to live on an island and that sometimes we will prime public safety and sometimes we will prime public health. And if you're willing to live on the island where someone's going to be angry at you sometimes, then you're fine. You're going to do this job really good. You're just going to get used to it. But sometimes at, at some point in time, you know, we need to figure out what is more important. That's a very tough call. It's got to take a lot of clinical skills. And it also takes a lot of courage to disagree with someone, whether it's a public health level or the public safety level. I know that Jay, you wanted to say something, but I wanted to throw that out because I think my interviews, when I did interviews for all those jobs, I would always say, are you willing to live on an island? And if you're not willing to live on an island, cool. That's all good for me. But if you're not willing to live on that island, then that's not a job for you. Well, it, it's, I'm glad actually you, you said that because you, you mentioned one thing. I just want to clarify um, to people that aren't, aren't used to the culture. Yes, things really bad are said sometimes, but the majority, the 99.9%, it's not you know racist or biased or or sexist or harassment. It's like Steve said, oh, going on a crazy call or something like, uh, you know, Caitlin said, not, not PC. It'll be a, you know, a tongue in cheek thing. Uh, nothing, nothing offensive to those things. So when we talk about the dark humor, for those that don't know, that's the kind of thing. And, and I'm glad you said, because that's the one I'm going to jump back to Steve when you're saying, oh, going on a crazy call. You say that to some, some people in the mental health field, like, Oh my God, he, he, he called you know, crazy. That's kind of like the things that are said. Yes, offensive to some, absolutely. But it's nothing overt that, that is making anyone uncomfortable. Right. And I think that you're absolutely right. And it, it's clear I wanted to mention that too. So thank you for saying that. You know, my experience, and Caitlin, I'll turn to you about being a woman in the department. 
when you're working at a co-response. But for me, I never heard racial slurs. I never heard anything of that nature that was said. And you say 99%. We'll agree to disagree because I think it's more in the 90, 95 range, but we'll agree to disagree. I'm not there. Regularly. Care, God, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, we all have different points of views, but uh, and I, I think that that never happened with me. And, I, and obviously maybe, you know, we're two guys and I'm going to turn to a woman here because I, you know, have you, you had that experience that people were sexist or misogynist or anything like that? Oh, you know, I, I never had that experience in directly. I have known clinicians that have had that experience, but it's rare. And it was the one that thing I'm thinking about was a very isolated situation, but no, I, you know, on eight years, I never, I never encountered any racial slurs or any anything in, overtly inappropriate that made me so uncomfortable that I like had to call my supervisor or anything like that. I mean, I, I did my clinical internship at a detention center and even working as a, as a woman in a detention center unit full of men, that was never my experience either. It was interesting because some of the corrections officers who were female had different experiences than I did with that. And I think part of that was my role, right? Like I was a clinician. I was there to be helpful to them rather than the corrections officer role, which is very different. So I think overall as a clinician in a police department, I felt most of what I felt from police and dispatchers was this overall sense of like being part of the team and being part of the family and, and really looking out for, for me, I always felt very protected, very safe. You know, one of the questions we used to get a lot during interviews was, do you feel safe in this job? And I always did always felt safe in, in, in all the, you know, and I was on some like hot calls (laughs) with people barricaded with guns. And I never once felt unsafe because as much as we tell them not to worry about us, we're still civilians in their cruiser <laughs> and right. in the back of their head somewhere, they, they keep that in their mind and they make sure, always made sure that, that I was okay. And so, yeah, no, I mean, I, uh, my experience working with first responders and not just police, you know, I've worked with firefighters and EMTs on calls and obviously been a fantastic experience because now I'm here and I'm in a new role, hoping to launch some treatment, uh, outpatient treatment, program programming for first responders because that's how much I I care about about the population and feel strongly that there's a big gap in the mental health treatment for first responders and it needs paying attention to so right and I think that we can do a whole show just on that treatment but uh, you know as we wrap up here it's already been an hour as usual it went fast one of the things that I want to finish on is that I think that dark humor and isms, whether it's sexism, racism, they're two different things. And I think that we can't, I can't emphasize that enough that to me, having dark humor is nowhere near isms. Cause if you throw the isms in there, that's no longer dark humor. That's just disrespectful. And I think that that's learning to work with that dark humor in order to handle the situation is much better. And I think that's what you're talking about. I think that's what Jay's talking about because I've never encountered that whatsoever, whether it's when I was working in the departments or even with the guys who come in and do counseling with me, I've never had that experience whatsoever. I've had dark humor and dark, real dark stuff said. And I'm like, if I don't laugh, they're not going to really trust me. So I got to laugh and I'm in my head. I'm going, Holy crap. (laughs) But anyway, as we, we wrap up here, maybe I, you know, Caitlin, you want to, Talk about a little bit of the new job and the work that you're doing right now and kind of like uh, where it's heading. And uh, remember, we're, you know, I'm international, so we got to not talk like it's down the street from us. Mm. <laughs> 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 yeah, so I'm pretty excited about it. We are, I'm working with Left Pro Behavioral to develop a first responder, first and last responder. Though I, I wasn't familiar with last responders until rather recently, but individuals who work at the medical examiner's office or the morgue or the funeral home, especially with COVID recently, they've seen a lot of a lot of death come through their door. And so there's a, a sort of a, crisis, a mental health crisis in that population right now. And so 
we're really going to try to focus specifically on first and last responders and create a partial hospitalization and intensive outpatient programming. So for those of you who aren't familiar with partial hospitalization or intensive outpatient, it's outpatient programming for partial people attend five days a week, kind of like they go to a, kind of like you would go to your job. And then our intensive outpatient is three days a week. And then participating in groups and individual therapy and really making this program separate from the general population programs, right? Because we understand that, you know, as a first responder, you know, you could be the EMT that was riding in the back of the ambulance with the person that got sections to the to the ER and now they've been placed at this at this hospital, this partial hospitalization program. <laughs> And you can't be in that, that same partial hospitalization program, right? Like that would not work. So we're really being mindful of, of needing that separate space and, and really paying attention to the content of, and the, you know, the clinical approaches that we want to take that are specific to working with the, the different needs. First responders have different needs than the general population and not good, bad, or indifferent. It just is what it just is. And so we really want to pay attention and be able to address that. Um, and where's this going to be located? In Westboro, Massachusetts, at Westboro Behavioral Hospital. Um, okay. It's a nice, actually discreet location, which is another thing that can be important for first responders, you know, not having, not being able to drive past someplace and see your car in the parking lot. Uh, that is, those are some of the things that we're thinking about and, and really trying to make um, incorporate into the programming. And so in, in the early phases now, I'll definitely be sure to let you know when we're up and running, but I'm excited about it. Looking forward to it. And Jay, anything you want to plug? I'm good right now. I talk right. a lot. So no, uh, just thanks for having me back. Uh, hopefully we uh, talk again soon, but uh, no, I just, I'm glad we had Caitlin on. I hate to say we, you had Caitlin on with me because Caitlin, um, she's been a big part of uh, getting me involved in things and also looking at myself internally also. So it's not, it's a plug for her. If I have to give a plug, it's a plug for Caitlin. Well, you know, Caitlin, I heard so many good things about you and this was an amazing experience. So thank you. And I hope that you, I've been thinking season four, if you want to come back, join us. I'm, uh, I'm, we're going to soon not have enough space for talking, but one of the thoughts I had is to bring in even a firefighter because we haven't had that experience so far. Not that Jay has not validated a lot of first responders or you, but really bring in a different perspective. And the reason why I bring that up is that they definitely have different needs sometimes. I know it's 80% similar, but there's a 20% that's specifics. And you talk about the military and uh, former military and uh, vets. I see first response, particularly firefighters, I see a different type of problem. And for the record, for all of uh, who are listening, no, not every first responder I work with is just trauma because I'm sick of hearing that one. But I thank you guys so much. And I will talk to you probably for season four. And I don't know who that person's going to be yet, but we'll have another person soon. We'll have no space here. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, thanks for having me, Steve. I appreciate it. Well, this concludes episode 28 of Finding Your Way Through Therapy. Thank you, Jay Ball. Again, uh, he's going to come in every season uh, until he gets sick of me or vice versa, but I don't think that's going to happen. And again, having Caitlin's fresh perspective is definitely helpful. She's been doing it as a mental health counselor for eight years in that department and starting a fresh new project. And I can't wait to hear that possibly in season four. And in season four, I'm thinking about bringing someone else in. I haven't quite lined it up yet, but hopefully uh, that will pan out. And you guys, are, I think you guys are going to enjoy it. Episode 29 will be with Jessica Jameson. Jessica is an LMHC, licensed mental health counselor, and a certified personal trainer. She has numerous uh, nutrition certificates. I've known Jessica for a while, and we're going to talk about how how to perceive her health in a different way. She has her unique perspective, and I'm looking forward to hearing that. So I hope you join us then. Tis the season, and I'm feeling very generous. So let's go with a contest. Here's a contest. You will be writing me an email to my email address. It's my full name, LMHC at gmail.com. I'll put it in the show notes. And write contest in the subject line and why you like the podcast. 
what the what are the prizes? Well, let's start with the most important prize, obviously, which is my book. So finding a way through therapy. So one person will win my book, finding your way through therapy. Uh, another prize will be Blight Landry's book, Trauma Intelligence, and that will be another person will win that. And the grand prize will be someone who wins both books. So remember to email me with the word contest and write down what you've enjoyed from my podcast. And I will also add you to my mailing list. So please do so before December 31st. That's when I will close it down. And I, you can go in and participate in the contest once a month. So you can do one in November, one in December, and we'll announce it in January. So looking forward to hearing from you and good luck. Please like, subscribe, or follow this podcast on your favorite platform. A glowing review is always helpful. And as a reminder, this podcast is for information, educational, and entertainment purposes. If you are struggling with a mental health or substance abuse issue, please reach out to a professional counselor or therapist for consultation.